As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again for a little special podcast from the personal mobile studio. I have to run up to uh, Frisco, where I used to work on a daily basis. Uh, I do still have some uh, going concerns up there, so I have to go up there and do a little bit of consulting and some planning for a DVD shoot and uh, a photo shoot that we'll be doing uh, next month for a martial arts product. So um, since I'm on the road today, instead of getting up early and recording early, I thought for the old-timers out there who remember when the show uh, always had this background noise and car noise and occasionally me yelling at an ass clown uh, on the highway trying to cut me off or what have you, uh, I would do a mobile podcast. So we're going to do that today. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're moving today. And I'm a brand-new RV owner, and uh, so we're going to talk about RVs. Now, I want to, before I go into the housekeeping, real quick give credit, Greg Cecil, um, who used to work for NASA and uh, took an early retirement, has been traveling all over the United States, sent me an email today um, because he heard me mention about my RV, and he sent me this big, long email about uh, what he's learned about being on the road. So a little bit of this is actually from him. Uh, I really didn't have time to dissect his email and make a plan out of it, I think I'll do a show based on his experiences in the future, but he does get some credit for today's show, and I always like to give credit to people when I'm using their concepts and ideas. So before we get into talking about RVs and how they fit into survival planning and bugging out, and even bugging in, believe it or not, um, let me go ahead and knock out housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one. Uh, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie's operation. I'm going to be down there at the end of March, uh, hopefully. I wasn't able to make the February one, but it looks like I'll be at the March one uh, for a workshop on hunting, trapping, and snares. She's doing more and more workshops. She's got one coming up on tanning leather, so check that out if you're in the Texas area. If you're anywhere where you get mail uh, and you can order something and they'll send it to you, check out their DVD on exactly what it's called, Backyard Food Production. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine and provide everything that you need, not just vegetables and fruits, but meat, protein sources, eggs, you name it, uh, as well. It'd be completely self-sufficient with a piece of land. Backyard Food Production has a DVD for you. Uh, Next up today is Survival Seed Bank. Survival Seed Bank comes from Solutions of Science. What is a Survival Seed Bank? Is it a bunch of seeds for you to go out and plant this spring? No, you could, but that's not really what it's for. It's seeds that are specially sealed and uh, protected with a descent that is designed to last up to 20 years. So these are seeds that are designed to be put away as a resource in the future should you need to uh, rely on seeds in the future whenever you can't get them, like let's say when the shit has indeed hit the fan. Next up, real quick today, I want to remind you that uh, you can connect with us online, YouTube, Facebook, uh, uh, and uh, Twitter. Uh, There's links on the survivalpodcast.com where you can connect to me by any of those means. Please subscribe to me on YouTube. I'm going to ask you for some help with YouTube here in a minute. I'll explain why I need a favor from the audience. So I'm going to be asking you a personal favor today that involves YouTube. So while you're doing it for me, uh, if you're going to be kind enough to do it for me, you might as well subscribe to my channel. If you don't have a YouTube account, you can set one up in a couple minutes. It's completely free, and YouTube doesn't spam you. It's not like a lot of other things out there. 
Um, but please connect with me that way. Next up, Member Support Brigade. If you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode, if you get that much value out of it, consider joining Members Brigade. You'll also get exclusive content available only for members and uh, a ton of discounts. One big one that we just added, Honeyville Grains. 10% discount on everything available at Honeyville Grains. And I have a great feedback from that. A lot of you guys are buying from them already. Uh, so I believe if you buy a lot from Honeyville Grains, the 10% discount will pay for the membership over a year anyway. Additionally, though, I want to tell you, again, I, I'm always looking for new people to bring on board if they qualify uh, to be a good discount vendor. So I haven't added them yet. It'll probably happen Friday or maybe this weekend. But our new sponsor, Common Sense Prep, is uh, gone out of their way to uh, to find a way to give us discounts. They're a new vendor, so they don't have a lot of margin on a lot of their items. But they do have sufficient margin on their DVDs and books to offer MSB members a discount. So all of their books and DVDs are available with a 15% discount. I have not added the code to the MSB yet, and I'll do that soon. I just want you to know I'm constantly working at it. Now, what do I need a favor from involving YouTube? Uh, Shelf Reliance, who also does a 7% discount for MSB members, sent me a Harvest 72 rack system. It is an awesome system. We went up to the bug out location. We put it together. We took video camera. We made a great video of it. I put it together. They provided a discount for everybody, not just MSB members at the end. And uh, where you can get that rack or several other racks at a huge, biggest discount they've ever done. But only until March 31st. Well, I was in a hurry to get the video up for them because I felt bad that they had to wait this long for it anyway. And um, I put that the offer expires 10:31:10 in the last slide. Well, it actually expired 3:31:10. So that video had gotten like 250 views, a bunch of comments, and I had to take it down because you can't edit a video once it's up there. You have to edit it and re-upload it. So it lost a ton of views from the initial spike that it gets from the subscribers. And a lot of people, I hope, don't think your comments were taken away or anything. Just when I deleted the videos, they went. So if you could please for me today go by, watch that video, and leave a comment, I would really appreciate it because I want to do a good job for them, and I want them to see a result from sending that rack to me because it was uh, a really nice rack, and I really appreciate it. So with that, the uh, housekeeping is wrapped up. Let's start talking about RVs. Well, let's start out with what I think is a common misconception about RVs. I often hear people refer to RVs as portable houses. I actually refer to an RV as not quite a portable house. The, the, unless you're talking about, you know, a half-million-dollar motor coach or the really giant, huge fifth wheels or something like that, um, I don't even think they approach being a house on wheels because they don't have the size that even a very modest uh, home does. Now, there are some of those really huge ones, the big Class A's, and, and again, the big fifth wheels. They, I mean, you could probably have a couple or even a, a family of three or four living in quite comfortably for an extended period of time. It's still not a house. It doesn't have a foundation. Um, because it's mobile, it generally doesn't come with land. I guess you could put it on some land, but what I see an RV is is almost a house on wheels, not quite a house on wheels. And I think it's important that you approach it with that level of, let's say, understanding of its limitations. And a lot of this first part is what does come from Greg. Greg pointed out in his email to me, the part that I did get to read, that maintenance on an RV is a lot more than maintenance on a car or a truck. And uh, I, I think that, you know, the way he, he phrased it was that 
when you look at an RV, you're like, it's like looking at your house. So of course, your home requires more maintenance than your car or your truck. I actually believe that an RV requires more maintenance than a car, a truck, or a house. It really does because it is not built to the level that a home is built to. And it has a lot of little systems that it has to, uh, that are specialized to be mobile. And because of that, they have a propensity to need maintenance. And one of his big suggestions, and I, I want to make sure I give him credit for this one of, of all of them, was if you're buying a used RV, it makes a lot of sense to confine your search to models of RVs that are being that are still being manufactured. Uh, a company that has been in business for a long time, because one of the biggest concerns that you're going to have going forward is finding parts for your RV. And if you buy something that is uh, no longer in production, finding parts becomes much harder. So that kind of goes up there with the not quite a house, not quite a car, not quite a truck thing, not quite a boat. They are a unique item all to themselves. And I think it's important that we approach them with that. And if we don't do that, then we're going to mislead ourselves. And there, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of good used RVs for sale. I elected to buy a new one, but I really kicked around buying a used one. And uh, the only reason I ended up buying a new one is because I was able to wrangle so many free things out of the guy uh, during the negotiation because all these guys are hurting right now. And then I got the warranty and everything's brand new. And the model that I was really interested in, which if anybody wants to look at my RV, you can look it up online. It is called a Shamrock 21 SS. Again, a Shamrock 21 SS. And if you Google uh, Shamrock 21 SS virtual tour, uh, you'll be able to go to a page where you can actually look at the way the interior looks and it's, it's a pretty cool little unit well when I looked for those used there weren't a hell of a lot of them around and the ones that were were selling for damn near uh, full price or they were uh, quite old if they were discounted I mean you're talking back to when they first started making them and there's been a lot of improvements in them so in the end I made that decision but uh, it does make sense to go out and really shop and know what you're buying before you buy it. I guess that's my point. To look at models and to go into forums and ask questions, and there's a ton of RV forums, and to you know, assess your needs. And I'll tell you that bigger is better, but for me, an RV, what I'm talking about when I say bigger is how much floor space you have. So you look at my little, my little unit. It's a 21-foot trailer. That doesn't sound very big. That sounds tiny. But since it's what's called a hybrid and the beds pop out and it has a slide out, it has the floor space of the trailer in the neighborhood of between 28 and 32 feet, honestly. And so I looked because I couldn't buy a 30-foot trailer and pull it with my truck. So I have a half-ton truck. And it has towing capacity limitations. And unless I went with one of the really expensive feather lights and then I was still pushing it to buy the bigger trailer, it made sense to buy something small and more manageable on the road. So you have to do a needs assessment based on that. But what I'll tell you is, when you go to an RV dealership and you walk into an RV and everything feels so spacious and there's so much room and you think this is plenty, when you have two adults, a dog, or two adults and a couple kids, and all your stuff in there, that space shrinks dramatically. If you've ever owned a boat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So consider that in your, 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 your quest to find the right RV for you. The biggest you can afford that will fit under your ability to move it around, tow it, and, and things like that. Now, real quick, 
I didn't even have this in the outline, but I want to talk about the, the advantages and disadvantages of something you pull versus something you drive. If you drive it, the disadvantage is that it's going to eat gas, and unless you're towing a car, uh, wherever you go, you're going to need to take your coach with you. If you're going camping or something like that, um, it's it's not real convenient then for you to, uh, to, to just go off to the store to pick something up or go on a little side escapade and lock everything up. It's easier to drop a trailer. Uh, the the advantages of the mo- of a coach though are that it's actually easier to drive on the highway maneuver back in than trying to back up a trailer. If you're not comfortable backing up a trailer, it can be actually quite difficult to back you know the travel trailers into some of the slots. Some of the bigger parks have pull throughs. They cost more. And if you're like me, you're not going to be spending all your time in parks anyway. So you're going to be going kind of into uh, into the wilderness so to speak and doing some you know self sufficient, standalone, self-contained camping, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you do have to make that, and I'll tell you there's advantages and disadvantages on both sides, and I won't go deep into it because I didn't have that plan for today. Let's talk about from a modern survival standpoint, though, the advantages of mobility. Um, being able to leave with a unit that is self-contained enough to provide you the majority of what you need, the majority of the things that you need to have with you to have a reasonably comfortable existence is huge. If you have to bug out, you're now not bugging out homeless. We said a RV is not quite a house on wheels. Exactly. It's not quite a house on wheels, but it's damn close. And because of that, wherever you go, you take a lot of the conveniences of home along with you. And I, I really think that is a, a huge advantage. Now, you know me, I'm not big on debt. Um, in fact, I am big on debt if we're talking about destroying it. So I don't want anybody to listen to today's show and run out and put an RV on and hawk, you know, being in, in paying on it for 20 years or whatever uh, because I'm saying all these great things. But if you can afford one, if it fits your lifestyle, I think that they are an amazing advantage. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have invested the money to buy one of my own. So there is a huge advantage to that mobility component, and I think that we we also need to think about the fact that just because it's mobile doesn't mean that everything is uh, easy to accommodate. One of the big things that I think people don't think about if you've never owned an RV before is you got to do something with your wastewater, both your gray water and what they call your black water. Your gray water is from your shower and your sink, and your black water, of course, is from your toilet. Um, it is illegal almost everywhere that I know of to dump gray water. It, it, it really is. I don't know that it needs to be. Uh, I think gray water can actually be quite useful, and if dumped in the right places and not always the same place. And, and gray water, I mean, I'm putting together a gray water irrigation system to use my gray water at my house in Arkansas to water gardens. So gray water, especially if you're you know conscious about what you use, can be dumped. It's just illegal now, and it should hit the fan, obviously. You might not completely worry about what's illegal, um, but you do have to think about how to accommodate. Blackwater is a different thing. 
There's this chemical that they give you to, uh, to keep things from sticking inside of your septic, your, your, I guess your, your toilet uh, tank and your black water tank. And uh, it's not good stuff to dump right on the earth. And, and it's highly illegal to dump black water. Uh, so you need to, as you're traveling, be able to find a place to dump black water. And, and I'll tell you what, there's, a, there's some things to think about with that. And a big one is don't use the toilet unless you have to. Uh, that'll help you. So if you uh, use proper wilderness technique and uh, when you're out camping, uh, aren't afraid to go in the woods, or if you're at a campsite that has uh, public toilets, using them the majority of the time will reduce your black water requirements. During a bug out situation, this may be even more important. Driving around with 30 or 60 gallons of black water is something you don't really want to do. So in a bug out situation, you may need to be kind of going in the woods like a bear, so to speak. It is something to think about. If you're camping at a place with a dump station, then it's really not that big a deal, especially if you have electric hookups and all. So that's like the day-to-day use is one thing of an RV, but when using it in a bug-out situation, it's a different thing. So be thinking about that and have plans for how to deal with it uh, in advance. The next thing that I want to talk to you about is one of the really cool things that I love about RVs, and that is how easy it is to augment your your energy requirements with solar electricity. If you think about putting together a solar system, what you need to do is, for your house, let's say, you need solar panels, obviously, to collect the solar energy. Those solar panels have to run down through what's called a charge controller. The charge controller prevents the solar panels from overcharging your battery or your bank of batteries. From the battery, you then need uh, either equipment that runs on 12-volt DC directly, or you need a... Uh inverter to convert that DC energy into AC electricity so it can be used by, um, you know, standard AC appliances. And you need all of those systems. You need the wiring connected to each other. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's not impossible. It's not insurmountable. A lot of people have done it themselves, uh, maybe brought in an electrician just for a few pieces of it. But if you think about an RV, from the battery back, you have everything already. You have a battery system that is either direct wired to 12-volt stuff in the RV, or you have the AC stuff is being run through uh, an inverter and already everything is taken care of. So the only components that you need to add to be able to uh, to put solar power on your RV are panels, wiring from the panels down to the battery bank, and in between that system, an invert or a, a charge controller. That's it. So making your RV a self-contained solar power station is as easy as panels, a charge controller, and a little bit of wire. Now, on my thoughts on this, I'm looking at adding solar power to my RV, and I have a couple different things I'm thinking about doing. All of them really are part of one plan. I'll give it to you, and maybe it'll give you some ideas of what you could do with your RV if you own one, or maybe even how you could create some redundant solar electricity that has nothing to do with an RV, maybe for your boat, maybe for your home. Uh, 
mounting the, the, the panels on the roof is, is fine for when it's just sitting around and existing charging and while you're going down the road making sure the batteries are charged up. Uh, so it's great for that. So what I need to first do is find a way to mount the panels flat on the roof in a very stable, safe way so that they're not damaged while we're going down the road and so that they don't, they don't uh, you know, what do you, what do you vibrate or anything like that. But I also want a way that is very quick and easy for me to disconnect them from the roof and then move those panels into a position where they're on an angle so that when we're parked somewhere, they can be on an angle and better collect the sun than a flat, than a flat uh, standing surface. You look at all the solar installations you'll see everywhere, panels are always angled generally toward the southern sky uh, or the southeastern sky because that was where they're going to get the greatest amount of solar exposure. There's also a fact that I think people also aren't aware of, that there is a loss in voltage when a solar panel transmits through a long cable. But it would be nice to be able to take the panels completely off the roof with a long cable if you were parked way back in the shade and maybe set them on a stand on the ground somewhere. Or if, um, you know, I have, I'll talk about storage in a minute, but I'm having to pay for storage for a few months until we move. I do not have a place for my RV at my house in Arlington. Uh, and I don't want to leave it up in Arkansas until we're living up there. So I'm going to build a covered uh, parking area for my RV in Arkansas and for a boat as well. In that situation, obviously, you can't keep your batteries charged up. So my thought is to create a longer cable and accept the, the loss in, in power that comes from the longer cable and create a quick, quick disconnect system so that I can disconnect from the panels and disconnect from the, uh, the input side of the charge controller and then simply put the longer cable on which can store in the storage components of the RV itself and if we're at a place where we're shaded or we're at a place where I have it parked I can then move the panels up onto the roof of the covered parking area and keep a constant full charge. I think another modification that makes a lot of sense with a lot of RVs is they'll come with a single battery. Uh, one way you can immediately increase your sustainability is simply to add a second battery uh, and wire them together. Now there's two ways to wire batteries together. There's series and parallel. I am not comfortable explaining that in an audio podcast. But I'll tell you that one way creates, if you put two 12-volt batteries together, you get 24 volts, and you'll fry a 12-volt system. Another way creates greater storage capacity and stays at 12 volts. I will put a link in today's show notes to describe that, but without a visual aid, I am not going to talk about it because I know full well somebody somewhere is going to mess it up and try to hook it up and, and push 24 volts of electricity into a 12-volt system, and that is bad freaking news. Uh, in fact, you're going to be pushing about 26 volts. A 12-volt battery generally turns out in the neighborhood of about 14 volts. When you put two of them together and wire them to combine their voltage, uh, you generally push out somewhere between 26 to 27 volts. Now, I'm real familiar with this because all of the military vehicles that I worked on uh, ran four batteries, two, seri- two ran in series and two ran in parallel on 24-volt systems. So um, it's not that I can't explain this to you. It's that I am afraid uh, to explain something that can cause damage to your electrical systems without a wiring diagram. But that said, adding a second battery or even adding a bank of four batteries still wired for 12 volts and putting up something as simple as 60 watts of solar power gives you an immense amount of portable power because, as we'll talk about in a second, your RV is not limited to all its functions from electrical. It gets a lot of its power capability from propane at least most of them do, the little one iPod does. So 
60, 60 watts or even 100 watts of solar energy pumped into a four-battery battery bank. And if we add a little generator to this, which we'll talk about in a second as well, and propane, we have a tremendous amount of self-contained uh, capability. The next thing I do want to talk about with, with the power expansion, though, is uh, understanding that you're, it doesn't make sense to put in a bank of four batteries if you're not going to put in enough solar or you don't have enough generator capacity to power them. And some units, some vehicles, mine for instance, it wouldn't make sense for me to go to four batteries because there's a limitation that these, these things have that I think a lot of people that have never owned one don't understand. For instance, uh, my unit has an air conditioner and it has the ability to heat hot water with propane, with electric, or with both. If you want to get the water hot really fast, you can run both the propane and the electric heaters in tandem. Uh, the power system is a 30-amp uh, system. If you look at the air conditioner's drawing amps and you look at the electric hot water's drawing amps, combined they well exceed 30 amps. What does that mean? That means that the system itself, no matter how much power is available to it, will not run both both of them at the same time. So if you want to take a hot shower using electricity to heat the water, you cannot run the air conditioner at the same time. Understanding limitations like that will keep you from making bad decisions, especially with things like generators, which I'll get to in a second. But I just want you to think that way when you're thinking about how much power that you're going to make available to your system. Some of the stuff on there, like your, your uh, air conditioner, you're probably not going to put enough battery bank on there to run it anyway. So that's a limitation you have. So without a generator or a plug-in, you're not going to be running that air conditioner. So take that out of the equation, and then you're thinking, okay, I have enough solar energy or, or uh, small generator energy that's charges charging the battery banks. How many things am I actually going to be able to run with those batteries? How long can two batteries run that system? And if it's more than 24 hours, then adding a third or a fourth battery uh, to a bank system is probably not going to make a sense. But two batteries, especially if you get the best ones you can, always make sense. Absolutely always make sense. And I've already made some phone calls. I found kind of the best battery that's available for RVs. Can't remember what it's called now. I'll see if I can find it online, put a link to it. Uh, but I have a really decent battery that came with my brand new. And I talked to you. I said, look, I got this brand new interstate battery for RVs. I want to put two of these other batteries, these blue tops in is what they're called. And uh, will you give me anything on my brand new battery? He said, absolutely. He said, I'll pay you the same thing I would pay a wholesaler for it as long as you show me the paperwork and show me that it is indeed brand new. And I said, absolutely no problem. So I'm getting uh, a really good rebate by trading in that battery that came with the unit. Now, some people would say, Jack, why don't you keep it by the two and a half free batteries? Because, again, it's overkill for the size of the unit, the power draws, and the things that I have. So it makes more sense to take that money and use it for other things. Um, now, real quick talking about propane, I think that it's uh, a good idea for you to d definitely figure out ways to carry additional propane. One of the things that I negotiated for my unit for free uh, when I was making my deal is I got a two-foot uh, deep, uh, completely across the back rack, uh, put on the back of the unit. So I can easily carry a generator, some additional cargo, maybe some bicycles, and one or two more tanks of propane along with the two propane tanks that fit up uh, in the front side of the unit. Now, one of the accessories that I think is just dynamite for RVs are the, um, the grills that are designed 
you have a little rail that you mount to the side of the RV, and a couple pins go in, and this grill just mounts to the side of the RV. Generally on the side where they are designed to have an awning, and I really recommend you get an awning. Um, there is a place where you can connect a uh, propane gas grill directly to the propane system of the unit itself, allowing you to cook outside, which makes a lot of sense, especially when you're out in the summer, to not be putting additional heat inside the RV. So that's something I definitely recommend you look at with your propane. One, expanding the amount of propane you can carry with you because it extends uh, how far you can go on your own without needing anybody. Uh, and looking at accessories that can allow you to cook outside of the unit. And an awning is a huge thing because with a little bit of rain you can still go outside. And in a situation where you don't have the power available to run that air conditioner when it's a hotter part of the year, that's a huge advantage. So those are some thoughts that I have on that. Uh, let's talk about generators for a second. My advice after my experience, and the guy was nice. I don't want to put it wrong, but the guy that I dealt with, the salesman I dealt with, I didn't feel like he was the most informed guy. I felt like he knew his units. He knew every uh, feature. He knew every little advantage. He knew how to help me figure out if this thing really fit my needs or to go a little bigger or a little smaller. He knew that. When it came to anything outside of how the thing came, and adding things to it, I felt this guy really didn't know what he was talking about. And I felt since I pushed him so hard on the margin and, and everything and negotiated with him so heavily, he was trying to get some money back, and he wanted to sell me this generator, and it was like a 7,500-watt generator. Well, he said, oh, you know, you wanted a really quiet generator, and this was quiet. Uh, this was uh, 7,500 watts, and it runs at 45 dB. And if you know anything about uh, generators, that's pretty quiet. But I, I have a big generator for the house, so I don't really need another big generator. What I needed was a generator that stayed with the unit um, and would run everything that the unit runs. So he's like, well, you know, when that air conditioner kicks on, it, it, it peaks. And he was talking about the electric hot water heater. Well, I didn't even know... Uh, at the time, that the water heater, electric water heater, and the uh, and the air conditioner couldn't run simultaneously. I found that out during my orientation, which I'll talk about in a minute as well. But uh, even not knowing that, it just something didn't seem right. Like I didn't need 7,500 watts of power uh, for this little RV. So I went and I found out what does the uh, air conditioner unit in there draw? It's a pretty good unit. It's a 13, 13.5 BTU, 13,500 BTUs. Uh, well, it, it peaks, which means to start up when it, when it first starts up in its initial draw, uh, it needs 2,750 peak watts, and it has a running watch, wattage of 1,250 watts. Well, everything else in that uh, vehicle, we're talking at the most you can put a draw on it, again, because you're not going to be running certain things uh, uh, with, uh, you know, there's only so much in a 21-foot RV, maybe another 400 running watts, and very little peak wattage, because the only thing else that's going to draw peak wattage is the uh, refrigerator, and the refrigerator, of course, is more than capable of running using the propane tanks. So we're really looking at lighting, uh, maybe some fans, and uh, maybe a little TV, DVD player stereo type thing. So we're going to 400, 500, call it 1,000 watts if you want to. If it's 1,000 other watts, we're looking at a peak wattage of 3,750 watts. 
uh, and that's a peak, and we're looking at a running wattage of about 2,250 watts. So I'm looking now for about a 4,800-watt gen set that's really quiet, maybe 4,500, giving myself a little bit extra, realizing, of course, it's a backup generator for the house, if the, the larger generator should ever fail for, for some reason. And uh, I'm, I'm probably going to spend more than I should because I'm probably going to buy a Honda uh, to get the quietness. And that's a big thing with generators and RVs. You want quiet generators. If you have a noisy generator, um, it's not, you know, convenient. Now, the other thing about having a small generator, though, and you could even get yourself one of these little, like, 1,000-watt uh, uh, real quiet Hondas, and uh, you won't be able to run that air conditioner. But, I, again, I don't know how often. I don't know if I'm even going to buy the bigger uh, unit for it. I might buy just a small unit for it because I don't know how well you're going to be sleeping with a generator running outside. And uh, if you're around other people, generally they get upset about that and they want you to shut it off. So unless you're kind of out remote in the woods, I don't know how practical that is. So with a small gen set, you can charge those batteries really, really efficiently and run everything except the air conditioner and then run your hot water uh, and, and your refrigerator on your propane. And in fact, the little generator set will run the refrigerator uh, that comes with most of the smaller RVs. Now, if you're in a big RV with, uh, with a full-size fridge, uh, you still can run them with relatively small wattage generators, not quite down to that level if you want to run everything else. But overall, I want you when, you, when you think about getting a generator for your RV, don't buy it from an RV salesman. Because I, with it, I don't want to offend anybody. So there's the exception to the rule. But my experience in all of them that I talked about is they wanted to sell me the biggest generator they possibly could uh, to, to beef some margin up against uh, what is a real harsh market for RVs right now. And when it came to accessories, they didn't really seem to know what they were doing either other than they wanted to sell me the most expensive accessories. So I spent some time on some RV forums and read some reviews and got an idea of what grill and, and what, what different things to uh, to have on board. I also think one thing you really want to have is a really good, if you have an awning, a really good um, roll-up uh, carpet that's designed for outdoor use to be set up and staked down underneath your awning to keep yourself out of mud and things like that. I think that makes it, everything a lot more comfortable from my experiences with RVs in the past. I know that's the, uh, the a big thing to think about. I also want you to think about weight considerations. Um, and I want you to understand that when an, when an RV salesman says, well, this is half-ton towable, and you have a half-ton pickup truck, that doesn't mean that your half-ton pickup truck can tow that RV. You need to get the towing specifications for your vehicle, and I'll tell you right now that you can exceed them a little bit, maybe by 10%, you know, without any real consequences whatsoever, especially if you have a good towing package with additional cooling and, and things like that. But if you start exceeding them by more than 10%, even if the vehicle handles it, you're going to reduce the uh, reliability of your vehicle, eventually you're going to have problems, and systems that always break down eventually will break down faster. And that's the reality. And even if you don't exceed them, when you start towing things, systems that wear out will wear out quicker. So that's one of the, you know, I talked about advantage versus disadvantage of a towed vehicle versus a driven RV, a coach. Um, that's one of, the, one of them there. The, the motor systems in a motor coach are designed to move that vehicle. That, that system is set up to work together. When you put a trailer on the back of your pickup truck and start dragging it around, you're now pushing that vehicle beyond its daily use. 
right? Unless it's a real horse. I mean, if you got a big old, you know, Cummings uh, Diesel, uh, Super Duty, or something like that, or one of the big old Cummings Dodge Rams, you know, you, and let's let's face it, most of the travel trailers, this is the size I'm talking about, are a joke for those guys to pull. But if you're sitting in what most American pickup truck drivers have, standard half-ton pickup, you really need to look at your your towing uh, capability. And one thing you need to look at is what the gear ratio of your rear end is. And because, like, for instance, my vehicle meets the towing specifications even loaded for the 21SS. My same vehicle with the same motor with a different rear would not meet the specifications. That's a big thing. The other thing is you have to look at the effect that larger tires have on vehicles. They generally reduce towing capacity. So that was another consideration I had to make. I still feel comfortable with my choice. But it, it really look at weight. And then think about the fact that it's not just the empty weight of the vehicle. What's the vehicle weigh when it's loaded down with all your stuff? When all your stuff is in the back of your vehicle? Um, all of those things count toward the weight. In other words, if you have a truck, the half, uh, a half-ton truck ready to carry half a ton, but you put, enough, but you put that half-ton in it and then you add to the towing weight, it, it does affect the, the gross towing weight capability of the vehicle. That 1,000 pounds matters, even though it's in the vehicle, not back. Uh, and then another thing to look at is your tongue weight, which is when the, when the trailer attaches to the truck and it pushes weight down, especially the rear bumper pulling like the smaller ones are, how much weight is there? Now, even if you have a towing capacity that matches and it has a, a, enough underneath it, right, so that you can put weight in the back of that truck and, and not exceed the total gross towing weight of the vehicle, you have to add the tongue weight to the capa- carrying capacity of the truck, and you just have to think about that. What I mean is if you have a, a towing weight capacity of 500 pounds, uh, and your, your, your trailer has a tongue weight of 400 pounds, you're good, right? You've got 100 pounds to spare. But if it's a half-ton rated truck and you have 1,000 pounds of weight in the back of that truck, and you put a 400-pound tongue weight on it, now you're at 1,400 pounds. You've exceeded its carrying capacity. Most trucks can exceed their weighted carrying capacity. I've had close to a ton in the back of half-ton trucks many times, but boy, you feel it. So it's just another consideration. I also want to talk a little bit uh, about storage concerns as I get toward wrapping up today and I approach my old stomping grounds up in Frisco once again with this mobile podcast. Um, really think about where the hell you're going to put your RV before you buy it. Talk to uh, talk to whoever you think you're going to use for storage. Find out what the storage cost is. Uh, for instance, I paid $68 for storage, and that's not even covered. Um, I, I would want it covered if it was going to be any more than a few months, but for a few months, it's good. Uh, I found rates for contained storage, so like a place you can go in and lock it up, and it's completely sheltered from the elements. Uh, in my area, you're running between $160 to $220 a month. That's a lot of money. Uh, to put it in perspective, there's a really beautiful little RV trailer park where people live, and I could rent a lot there for 300 with you know power and everything available to me. So if I was going to do that, I'd be more likely to park it there where it's watched by residents. But you want to want to make sure you find a place with good security. I found a place where uh, there's 24/7 access, but there, and the, but the management is only available at the office uh, Monday through Saturday, or actually Tuesday through Saturday. But there's always management on site for security purposes. 
to me that was very important that somebody didn't hook up my trailer and, and take off with it. Uh, if you're storing it at a place like that, or even if you're storing it in front of your home, simple things you can do to make it a lot harder for somebody just to hook up and steal the damn thing. Uh, one is to put a lock on the trailer hitch, and that's what everybody does. The other is to get yourself a good piece of chain and chain the tires together. Uh, create another impediment. Uh, anything that slows down or makes stealing things more noisy is something to consider. Uh, I won't go deep into that, but I just wanted to bring up today that you do need to think about storage considerations for your RV. They're bigger than you think they are. When you look at them in a showroom or you look at them on a lot and they don't seem that big, when you park them in front of a house, you may find that your neighbors don't want that RV there. So unless you have the space on your site to store one, it's another thing to really think about. Real quick, I want to mention something called teardrop RVs. Uh, they're pretty big among the uh, self-reliant community. They're very small. Uh, they pretty much provide a place to carry some stuff and uh, a place to sleep and uh, not a whole lot more be told with a car. And a lot of people have gotten really ingenious with creating, like, you know, outdoor shower, you know, basically stuff that attaches to them that extends the uh, concealed area, and uh, you have to be real efficient with them. They're a consideration. They were not a consideration for me. And I'll tell you why. It's one of the things I want to kind of finish up with today. Um, when I looked at an RV, it wasn't just for survivalism and bugging out and things like that. It had a lot more to it. I was looking for an RV to use and use often to take maybe a, once we get moved up to Arkansas, there's so many beautiful parks up there, to take maybe a trip or even someone's two trips a month uh, and go spend three or four days with my wife and take the dog with us and really enjoy the experience of owning an RV. So I, my big principle, right, you do things for preparedness that improve your quality of life today, even if nothing goes wrong. So that's the even if nothing goes wrong side of it. So when we bought one, we were really thinking about the way that Joe Average would buy one. And then we accessorize it and utilize it as a survivalist. So we, you know, we, we occasionally think like the masses, which is, hey, how much space is in this thing? How comfortable is it? How will it work for cooking? You know, where will the dog sit when we're sleeping at night? Uh, how, you know, how do we hook it? All the stuff that any any person purchasing a product like this would think about. Um, when we then we again then we look at and I'm sorry folks I'm trying to, I'm maybe getting used to the mobile podcast thing again and I'm trying to merge into a lane and this person's not really an ass clown she's just doing her makeup I guess that makes her an ass clown you're pretty honey uh, don't worry about it you can put your makeup on in the parking lot anyway um, what was I saying sorry I guess I really am not quite in the groove again Oh, that we would, you know, really look to make sure that we can utilize this thing in emergencies, that it's fully stocked, that it's ready to go, even while it's stored, uh, that we have everything ready. Because I don't like to keep a lot of stuff stored in my RV when it's at a storage facility. Because if somebody break, you know, can't steal it, but breaks into it, they'll steal a lot of the stuff uh, from it or off it or from inside it. So uh, I've kind of limited that. But we have started to think already about how to improve the size of our bug-out equipment so that everything can go with it right away. Uh, and it, it is important that if you're going to take this step and you're going to say that it's part of your preps, 
that you begin to modify the RV, prep the RV, and learn and know it intimately so that uh, you can actually make that happen if it's ever necessary. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about here kind of at the end, too. Uh, I've used RVs before. I've had a little travel trailer uh, that we had when I was growing up. Uh, I've had a pop-up camper that I used to borrow from a buddy. So I'm pretty familiar with RV systems. When I went in for what they call your orientation, which is where they go over your vehicle and they explain every single thing about it, and generally it's not the sales guy that does that. It's a service tech because he actually works on them and he really does know all the systems. When I went in for that, the guy said to me, have you ever owned or used an RV before? And I almost said yes, because it was the truth, and I generally tell the truth. I also have a hard time admitting that I don't know something when I do know something. I'm, I'm a guy that is confident in my knowledge, and I like to share my knowledge. If I didn't feel that way, I wouldn't be doing a podcast, right? So, as I... And, and why did I... Why did I say no, right? Well, I said no because... I wanted to make sure that the guy didn't leave anything out. I looked at it this way. I just paid these guys a lot of money for an RV. Part of the service was orienting me to my vehicle, its capabilities, its limitations, and things like that. And I wanted this guy to go through this with me as though I had never even seen one of these things before and make damn sure that I knew every possible component of it that I would ever need to know. I highly recommend if you buy a new RV uh, that you ensure that they provide an orientation. I think most good dealerships will ask about it before you sign though. And then when you go get that orientation, no matter how much you think you know, play dumb. Because I learned things about the unit that I purchased that um, were really important. Now, I don't know, had I said, yeah, I know a little bit about RVs, and I know how the power systems work, and in general, I've, I've camped with them before, and I know how to set up an awning. I don't know if there was anything that he would have skipped. He may have still done a great job. But I didn't want to leave that to chance. You know, I wanted to have uh, a completely thorough briefing on this vehicle that I just spent all this money on from a person that knew it intimately, that works on them and services them all the time. And with that, I think I am going to wrap up today. I do want to kind of point out that I am a big believer uh, in RVs. If I wasn't, I would have spent the money that I just spent one on right now for uh, bug-out necessities. I also have one other plan that I'll share with you here. I've been asked a lot by you guys. Once you move from Arlington and you're living at what is your bug-out location now, will you have uh, another bug-out location? Will you go buy another place? And I've kind of talked about it before, and this is part of that plan. Uh, We don't really want another house once we live there. We don't want another complete, full property in the typical sense of the word. We love the area so much that we don't really need another house in the mountains somewhere. We live there every day. So... My intention has been to go further up into Arkansas, further out in the sticks, maybe an hour or two away, and look for maybe 20 acres of mountain land, uh, raw land with no services where it would be even difficult to get services back into, and find a piece of property up there. Uh, to make that property both an experiment in permaculture and kind of a hunting lease. Uh, so I'm looking for hunting land. I'm looking for land that has you know nothing but maybe dirt road access, or even if it has uh, hardball access, it's uh, there's no power, there's no there's no uh, 
water, there's no sewer, there's nothing like that. And I'm really looking for a place where if you wanted that, it would be difficult to get. That drives the prices of the land way down uh, immensely. Uh, I might put a well in just to have water there, or I might put in some surface water features to have water. And I might put in some water collection, and I may build some basically some shed-type buildings that do water harvesting as well to be able to keep some things there without having anything too valuable that somebody would want to steal and then post it. Well, now having an RV... It serves that piece of land serves two purposes. One, instead of going there and sleeping in my truck or camping in a tent or something like that, when I want to go hunting, I can take a little bitty house with me, right? And I can park on one end and kind of hunt the other end of the property. And if it's near uh, public land, like there's a lot of national forests and things like that, if I can find a piece bordering that, then basically the national forest is my backyard when I'm up there. It will also allow me to go up there with my wife to do little projects and things like that, which will be really cool because she'll be willing you know, she's not big on the whole head uh, camping thing. In the event that we, for some reason, need to get further away from hot springs due to a, a, an emergency, we now have a bug-out location where we can bring this self-contained capability to us and have some preps already cached on, sh- on site. Some of you have been worried that it's not real hard to find out where I'm at in Arlington, Texas. It's a little harder to find out where I'm in Hot Springs. I think you could find me if you really wanted to, but when you found me, all you would find is the mailbox, and you would be miles and miles and miles, approximately six miles from where my house actually is. Uh, so, uh, But I don't make a real big effort to hide uh, where I would go. I'll tell you this. When I buy a piece of land like that, uh, the only people that will know where it is is myself and my wife and me maybe some really uh, trusted friends. Uh, that type of location is something you want to keep highly secret. And uh, any cash that you have out there, you want to keep stored in a way that makes it almost impossible to find. So summing it all up, I think you can see how you can take an RV and fit it into a prepper lifestyle in a variety of ways. You have one, a bug-out vehicle. You actually can create a secondary bug-out location using it, and you have the day-to-day use aspect that people generally buy them for. I think it brings you a lot of freedom, and they make a lot of sense as you get closer and closer to a point where you don't work full-time. I think that's why a lot of retired couples buy them. I think if you think about your future, though, and you work hard now, you can shorten the time it takes for you to get to that partial uh, or even full retirement. I've been talking about prepping as a lifestyle for a long time, and I've done a show about prepping as a retirement plan. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that I am tired of seeing Americans work until they're 70 years old or 67 and a half or or 65 to, to get a retirement, which is a little draw of Social Security and actually the freedom to take their own money out of a retirement account. And I think RVs can be a big part of that early retirement retirement lifestyle if you pay cash or you pay them off very quickly. If somebody said, Jack, I have no debt, zero, Uh, we have money in the bank, I don't want to deplete the money quite that much, I still have a good income stream, I'm not going to stop working anytime soon, Uh, if I had to, I could pay off the balance, I want to buy this thing for 50% down and finance it over five years, interest rates are low, I think it makes sense, would you, you know, get all evil with me over debt with that, I'd say, first of all, you're free, you do whatever you want, but no, I I would actually see that as a reasonable and uh, understandable use of debt uh, in your current situation, as long as you could, if you had to, make the balance due go away. 
in any type of an emergency situation. Because here's the big thing with an RV. Um, we always say prepare for the disaster most likely to hit you. Well, the disaster most likely to hit you is job loss, personal, financial, turmoil, you know, things that destroy you financially as an individual, and your next-door neighbor doesn't even care. Well, if you have an RV, you're never going to be homeless on the street. If nothing else, as long as you have enough gas to tow it somewhere, uh, you have a place to sleep. So it is kind of the ultimate fallback for catastrophic individualized lifestyle failure. And I wonder how many homeless people uh, would love to have even a little $2,000 uh, used, beat-up teardrop trailer right now. Uh, probably beat sleeping on a sidewalk. So it's, it, it really does fit the modern prepper lifestyle as long as you're sensible about it. And with that, I think I'm going to sign off today. I've actually been sitting in the parking lot for the last couple minutes. Uh, really made good time getting up here today. Uh, I really enjoyed doing another mobile podcast with you. I will be back in the office tomorrow. It'll be a Friday. I'll see if I can put together a call on Friday if I have enough of your calls. If I don't, I will be doing something with listener feedback because I've gotten a ton of stuff from you guys about what's going on out there with current events right now. It's probably time to back up and do a show like that. So it'll be one or the other. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.